If you watched The Social Dilemma over the pandemic, you might have been either freaked out of your mind or totally unsurprised. In any case, it feels true that many of the technologies we use on a daily basis haven't been built with our best interests in mind. That unfortunate reality often isn't the result of malicious intent, but the thought and hard work required to develop technology that aligns with our senses of well-being and meaning doesn't scale like a modern social network does. Joe Edelman is concerned about these issues and wants to figure out how we can do better. He co-founded Time Well Spent, now the Center for Humane Technology, with Tristan Harris, and runs the School for Social Design. His work finds applications in design methods, product metrics, market design, recommender systems, AI ethics, and other areas. This is the Gradient Podcast, and I am your host, Daniel Bashir. As always, if you aren't already subscribed to The Gradient, go ahead and follow us wherever you're listening to this podcast. You can also follow us on Substack, where you'll get notifications whenever we release a new podcast episode, article, or newsletter. So, Joe, I think that your work has a lot of different ways that we could describe it. Um, You, on your Twitter, I guess, describe meaning-based metrics, meaning-based ML, big data virtue ethics, and a lot of other things in there. Could you give us a little bit of an introduction to your personal journey to getting interested in all of these things, and I guess a broad sketch of what you view as your your set of primary interests right now? Sure. Okay, I'll try to take those in turn. So I think this these interests started uh, when I worked at Couchsurfing. I developed the organizational metrics at Couchsurfing. Uh, so when we shipped a feature, was this an improvement on our metrics or, you know, do we roll it back? Um, and the metrics of Couchsurfing were about, roughly speaking, meaningful connections between people. So uh, I called it net orchestrated conviviality at the time. So, you know, are people meeting each other and having some kind of great time? And uh, one version of this is, you know, Couchsurfing had reviews. So we would get these text um, summaries of people's encounters with one another and I ran at the time uh, like a Bayesian analysis on these text summaries and tried to separate, okay, which ones seem like really beautiful, meaningful connections that we're like especially proud to have made this connection and, and which ones aren't. And that kind of went into our organizational dashboards and our decisions about experiments and products and stuff like that. Um, and at the time, I thought this was great and would kind of usher in, I was a bit naive about it. I thought this would usher in a kind of a new wave of um, like, this is how social networks should be in general, right? Like, because Facebook also is connecting people and why not just measure the most meaningful or best connections or whatever. And I slowly watched um, things go a different way. <laughs> and I watched the the metrics that, that, uh, the engagement metrics that drove YouTube recommended, now TikTok, um, uh, Facebook newsfeed, and so on. I watched them not lead to what I thought of as the best kind of social connections, um, far from it. And, and I saw that cause a lot of problems. And, and I, I saw it, I think, causing problems. Uh, I was uh, Tristan Harris and I started this thing called Time Well Spent, um, which is the precursor to the Center for Humane Technology. And time well spent was our kind of proposal to not not maximize time spent online, um, but maximize time well spent. So this is like very close to the metrics that I used at Couchsurfing. Yeah. And uh, yeah, but this this I, I sort of my first take on this was in this professional capacity at Couchsurfing. After that, I got much more interested in what the difference is between these meaningful interactions and engagement, um, like philosophically or sociologically. And I started getting a clearer picture. I did a lot of reading in economics and philosophy, and I started getting a picture of how our whole society is kind of built around revealed preferences or like many different parts of our society 
are built around revealed preferences, including markets and voting, not just virality. Virality is like another layer of revealed preference, um, where the assumption is people like or click or view whatever is best for them. And then that kind of puts more resources on the thing. And there's a feedback loop where any kind of click or like creates more clicks or likes. And that's, that's kind of the engagement loop. Um, and historically, and in, in the kind of rhetoric of economists and also people who make recommender systems and things like that, that sounds good because you're sort of trusting the user to, uh, to, to guide you, whatever the user is into. If they click on it, if they watch it, if they like it, um, that's what gets amplified. So, you know, naively you'd think, oh, well, if we trust the users, they'll amplify what's what's best for them and, and what's best for everyone is best for society. So, um, and, but there's something wrong with that, obviously, right? Otherwise we wouldn't have terms like populism, clickbait, um, right? Internet addiction. Like uh, there's obviously something wrong with that. And I spent years trying to figure out, you know, okay, what exactly is wrong with that? And can we make a very principled statement of what's wrong with that so that we can, is there a way that we can still trust the user uh, and not have some kind of central authority that says, this is what everybody should be watching? Because that just seems like a step backwards. Um, but not trust the user to reveal, like not trust that, that everything we click is a statement about what's really meaningful to us. And so that led me to, um, to the conception of sources of meaning that I have now and to try to figure out, okay, what's the math? Can we go from information about clicks or other kinds of information from users to, uh, to uh, being able to build a recommender or a machine learning assistant or something that's um, helping people with what's really meaningful to them rather than keeping them in an engagement loop? This is a really great overview. And I think perhaps starting from where you've laid this all out, a good place for us to maybe begin digging into some of the issues might be at that very differentiation between reveal preferences and what is actually meaningful to me. Um, certainly myself having worked on a recommendation system for a brief period of time, I also saw how much you really only get at these initial preferences. I, I also thought of it as kind of first order desires um, that a person might have. And there really is so much you you just can't see in that. I think also interesting too, you mentioned some of the economic philosophical underpinnings of all of this. And I guess there is that sort of standard thing of the, the homo economicus who we assume is like a rational agent. And I think that in many ways probably drives much of the ways we, we assume that a person interacts if we, if we treat people as just these very simple agents. And you've created a lot of language, I think, to describe the ways in which we currently sort of think about um, the ways in which people interact with our recommendation systems for example, the sort of maximizations they do. So I'd love for you to maybe give us a bit of an overview of what sorts of things are we building right now that take advantage of these revealed preferences? Um, how does that sort of lead them astray? And is there anything that we could be doing a little bit differently? So... One thing that's a little bit tricky about the revealed preference uh, framework, that's something a little hidden, uh, is that revealed preference implies a small option set. Um, whenever you're clicking like on uh, a video uh, on, on newsfeed, you're, you're not choosing from the entire set of videos that you could conceivably watch. And you're not saying, oh, this is actually the best video for me on the internet. You're, you're choosing from a, maybe six videos that YouTube recommended, you know, if you're clicking one of the videos that YouTube recommended, put in your sidebar, you know, there's maybe six options there, right? And so it's a kind of a vote, but there's, it's actually pretty information poor in terms of uh, like a, a statement of what is really good for the user. And uh, 
there's that's one limit. There's a limited option set. There's also a limited degree of introspection. People iteratively figure out what's good for them. Um, they try something. They they're like, no, actually, this is I'm, maybe I'm trying to learn to play guitar. I, this this seems too advanced for me. This seems right. And so there's this. Uh, all of those will look like clicks, right? But but actually, there's some kind of reevaluation going on and some kind of refinement going on, right? This is hard to model, and um, and then uh, uh, there's also uh, different kinds of pressures that are created or stru- the, the, the structure of a system creates. So, for instance, if you're um, uh, on Instagram and you want to raise your follower count and you, you're, you're trying to like make it as like an influencer or something like that, that's going to drive you towards certain behaviors that are going to be read by the recommender as things that are like the things that the user wants. But they're actually there because of Instagram, right? Like the user wouldn't want those things if the user wasn't trying to be an influencer on Instagram, right? So what you get as revealed preference is a super complicated mix of things that have to do with the limited menu, things that have to do with the early on in the user's process of figuring out what they need, things that are structural. And I think it's really important to to find some way to filter those out, to bin those out, and uh, especially remove the structural stuff, because this is some of what creates these these viral loops that are really bad for people, where... um, you know, a trend just makes the trend happen more um, or everybody feels like they have to be on trend and comment on the, the current thing or whatever. Right. So if you can, it, and I don't think it's actually that hard to separate these different components of what's called revealed preference. Um, it's just something people don't do because they, they, they treat the preferences as the kind of uh, independent variable when it's much more of a kind of a dependent variable of deeper underlying uh parts of what we're up to as agents. So I think that's in a way my, my main uh, thing that I'm trying to persuade the world of is, okay, let's take preference and uh, get under it and figure out which component in preference is really meaningful to people, which is what, which tells us something about what they're really after. And let's amplify that and not amplify the rest. I I do have a question on this specific aspect of things. And I think that you also provide some motivation um, for why places might, why, uh, for example, social media systems, things like that might actually want to operate on on these real preferences. And I think in values, preferences, meaningful choice, you also kind of describe some desirable properties this might have, even if it leads us to places that we that it might not. Um, I think also sort of using the James C. Scott seeing like a state language. One thing I wonder about is how much this is kind of inevitable and that very much in the same way that a state has to reduce a lot of complexity among its population in order to render that legible so that it can then craft policies, act. And in some ways that does become very much a self-fulfilling prophecy. Could we not say the same about some of these organizations building these technologies? And I guess, what would you say to the person who's like, well, if I try to peek behind these revealed preferences and really get at the depth of what's meaningful to a person that makes it a little bit more difficult for me to, to act in a kind of similar way. There's many different kinds of things that you can try to build on revealed preference and you can try to build on um, values or sources of meaning or some more specific uh, piece of information. Um, And some of them I think scale quite nicely and some of them don't. Um, So for instance, if you're building Facebook groups, you can collect a ton of information about what's meaningful to people, but you may only be able to serve like you may you, architecturally Facebook groups needs to be designed this way or that way. And you maybe can't build the ultimate communication modality for each of your users. Right. So there's like an, an uh, inevitable simplification going on um, when it comes to software architecture. But I don't think that's as true with recommenders. Um, like I think there's, there's, or, or things that replace markets or things that are democratic structures that might replace voting. 
I think that you can, you can often get very detailed information about users and act on it. Um, and it's just a matter of, uh, yeah, which kind of information you're trying to get. I don't know. That's a kind of a broad answer to your question. Do you have, maybe you can drill down if you want. I can definitely see how it's not as bad as, okay, I have to operate on something like reveal preferences like I was before. So you're, you're saying here, yes, it might be too complex to take in all the different sorts of sources and meaning that different people have. But again, that inevitable simplification just means there's maybe only a subset of that we can, we can kind of reasonably act on. And I think that's more true in, it sort of depends on um, what kind of labor is required to customize things per, per user. Um, so recommender systems can customize things per user uh, without really human labor to a very large degree. Whereas if you're building custom software, you have limits to how much you can customize it per user. It's the same with the urban planning, right? You can't really customize um, the, the layout of the city for each, you know, I, I live in an apartment. I can change the inside of the apartment. <laughs> I can't really change the building to meet my sources of meaning that well. Um, that's okay. You know, there's some, some compromise in, in each case built based on the relationship between the data source and um, what would be ideal based on the data source and what is actually feasible. We've kind of discussed, I guess, in broad strokes, some of the initial issues here. So how do different services that we might use operate on these reveal preferences we have? And there's something a little bit deeper than that, that they can try to get at. And we would really like for the technologies we use to be more aligned with with values, sources of meaning. Could you elaborate a little bit just on how you think about what are values, what are sources of meaning to people? And maybe you don't have to give a lot of detail about like how an organization like Facebook would implement doing something like this, but how do you think about actually actually getting at and revealing those values? Sure. Yeah. So let me start by saying I use values in a, in a kind of a technical, like I have a particular definition of values and uh, it doesn't include a lot of stuff that other people mean when they say values. So uh, two kinds of things that it doesn't include, which many people mean mean by values are social norms. Like when people say family values, they often mean some kind of social norm, like uh, what it is to be a father conventionally or whatever. Um, I think that might be important. Like those things are sociologically important. Social norms are very interesting to study, but that's not part of what I mean when I'm saying that um, a recommender system might pick up on values. And another thing I don't mean is... Uh, social visions or ideas about how society should be things like equity, fairness, um, freedom. I mean, so this is why I use the term social sources of meaning. I mean, things that are individually meaningful for an individual user or class of users. So I mean, the things that are meaningful to people, um, different kinds of creativity, free expression, uh, vulnerability, boldness, I mean things that are meaningful to classes of people, like what's meaningful to an artist or a scientist or a musician, uh, different kinds of improvisation or jamming, different kinds of, uh, you know, for a scientist pursuing the, the frontiers of human knowledge, things like that. That's the kind of stuff that I mean by values. And uh, again, I, I think that the other things like uh, equality and freedom are still important. But when I'm talking about uh, tuning a recommender or like doing something in service of my definition of values, I mean, in service of these, these sources of meaning, which I do think play in a very important social role. It's not just like an individual preference. I think that, for instance, the values of scientists are very important for science to keep working. If scientists are not able to meaningfully pursue the frontiers of human knowledge, that's not just bad for the scientists. It's also bad for science. So I think uh, these sources of meaning are so socially important, but they're not the only socially important thing. Uh, social norms and uh, these ideological commitments and social visions, these are also socially important. So how do you uh, detect them? Well, first let's, let's try to get what they, what they are conceptually, actually. I think 
a source of meaning or a value in the, in the way that I use the term is a kind of attentional policy. So if you, if you think about someone, I use this example in one of my papers, you think about someone who's trying to be witty or clever or, or do a kind of wordplay before they manage to say a clever thing or a witty thing, they're going to be sort of searching for clever or witty things to say. And they're going to have maybe even an internal thrill before they even say the thing. That's like, oh yeah, I found, I found a really clever, uh, you know, they're going to have a smile on their face when they say it or whatever. So that's what I mean by an intentional policy. I mean, that kind of search. Um, and this comes back to what I was saying earlier about option sets. Like um, people have a longer term project, like economists mostly focus on choice as like the final choice of X over Y. But before there's that final choice, there's a longer term project of kind of searching for things that have the qualities that an X has over Y, right? So I'm searching for, yeah, the kind of flats that have this sort of spacious feeling that I love, or I'm searching for um, uh, kind of videos that are inspiring, a particular, you know, feeling I have when I'm confronted by uh, the richness of the cosmos, maybe I like astro- uh, astronomy videos or whatever. So there's a, there's a search that people do for things with certain qualities. And sometimes that search is meaningful and sometimes not. Um, and so one way to, um, to get at values is to say, okay, what kind of uh, criteria are you searching for? Like, what, what, are, you, what are you looking for? What, what's in common with this? If, you, if, you're, if you're watching somebody on social media, for instance, you're watching somebody interact with a recommender, and they're honing in on something and they, they, they're, you know, advancing from video to video or something. What's the attentional criteria they're using to find better and better things that are, you know, have higher and higher quality according to some attentional policy they're, they're searching for. And then is that meaningful to them? Like, uh, because it might not be, it might just be something their boss told them to find. Um, it might be something that, uh, um, that they need for something else, you know, maybe they need, uh, they need to figure out how to fix their toilet. And so they're looking for a video at whatever, like, right. <laughs> um, some of those, if you, if you, if you ask the user or you deduce somehow what their criteria are as they search, and then you ask the user again, is this something that's sort of part of the good life for you? Because you always like you you love being witty and you love entertaining your friends or something, or is this just sort of a temporary useful thing? that you're searching for. This is a good way of filtering out their sources of meaning, their values. I, I recall in your paper, you sort of described these, <clears throat> these two different sorts of attentional policies, right? So on the one hand, you have your, your instrumental attentional policies. Again, not really, they might lead to things related to the good life, but aren't really kind of a, a dense part of it, right? And then you've got the constitutive attentional policies, which if I if I don't attend to these values, to these things, they seem a lot more important to my conception of the good life. And my life would seem diminished if I weren't going to, if I weren't attending to them in a proper way. Yeah. And this is, this is, seems to work on, on many levels. Like uh, people can interview each other for this kind of information and reliably converge on the same kinds of data objects. Um, people, you know, surveys can be run uh, user interfaces can be built. So it has some stability and consistency as a data object, which is you know desirable if you're going to build systems on top of it. This is a bit of a, maybe a tricky question, but one thing I, I tend to wonder about things like constitutive attentional policies and in your, your paper on them, you do sort of um, illustrate some of the ways they fall short as well as some of their really great advantages. Um, but one thing you point out is the requirement for introspection, articulacy, the fact that they're harder to verify than reveal preferences where I can just be like, hey, you, you clicked on that thing. There's not much we can, there's not much debate to be had over that. But with a constitutive attentional policy and the type of introspection it requires, I think there's a good argument to be made. And you pointed this out earlier with examples of Instagram, for instance, the fact that when I'm hooked into a social media system, I might, my desires might be getting a little bit warped and I might start to get more out of touch with 
what my own values are. And I think you've sort of described this problem in a number of different areas. So I guess just wondering at a little bit more of a fundamental question, what are your thoughts on how, I guess, distant we might be from these core values we might be seeking when we introspect? Yeah, I found that people, most people can... um can get to them pretty quick. So, but you have to ask the right questions. And I think people are seldom asked the right questions in our current society. And so part of switching to this model means that we would be asked certain questions much more. Um, so uh, one, w- w- one way, one thing we have working is we have an LLM, we have a, uh, yeah, a Da Vinci 3. Uh, ChatGPT 3.5 based uh, LLM that, asks people just for stories of what's meaningful to them. Like, uh, you know, tell me a story of what's been meaningful to you at work recently or what's been meaningful to you in your relationship or with your buddies or, or whatever. And then from these stories, it, it's, it, it presents different possible things that uh, might be sources of meaning for that person and they choose. And this seems to work very well for a very wide variety of people. So people can reliably tell stories of what's meaningful to them <laughs> and they can choose uh, an abstracted source of meaning uh, from a menu, you know, after that story is told. And that abstracted source of meaning seems to fairly, it seems to point to something consistent about the person such that they'll have many stories where the same kind of thing is meaningful to them. And then if you arrange things that sort of fit that source of meaning based on, you know, just the text in the card, forgetting about their story, you'll, you'll be doing something good for them. And they'll be like, yes, uh, I feel like you've understood what's meaningful to me and you've made something that's meaningful to me. So that's one kind of proof that uh, the introspection isn't so far away. And, and another is that even when people are confused about their who they want to be, like, for instance, somebody who says they want to be a hustler or an Instagram influencer or something like that, you can ask them certain questions to get them to decompose the part that's meaningful and the part that's just kind of instrumental or normative about that. And, and people are usually grateful to do this work. It does require a kind of journaling or something. But if you write like, oh, how am I trying to be a good boyfriend just to meet expectations or as a kind of social performance of what a good boyfriend is. And what are the ways in which being a good boyfriend is really meaningful to me? Like people can actually figure that out. Um, They don't figure it out unless they're asked. Uh, So part of the story here is, is, you know, there needs to be some interface or person (laughs) that's occasionally asking people questions like that. Um, But if they're asked, they, they, they can answer. There are some people, I think a, a small minority of people are very, very confused uh, about what's meaningful to them, can't even tell stories about a meaningful time. Um, I'm not sure what to do with those people, but I think this is uh, maybe half a percent or something, and they probably need some kind of therapy or something to help them get back in touch with what's meaningful to them, but that's not very many people. I think certainly you're right, just that. It seems like most people are generally in touch with what's meaningful to them. But yeah, I I think you're right that we just don't have a lot of opportunities to actually engage with those questions. We've focused a lot on, I think, some of the individualistic aspects of all of this. So I, as an individual, have an interaction with something like YouTube or Facebook. And I'd love for us to turn to perhaps the more group-oriented picture. Um, And I think in particular, in your Rebuilding Society on Meaning video, you described this problem of kind of a a decline in spaces, um, a decline in togetherness and meaning. And so perhaps drawing on some of the things we've discussed about how often there might be this sort of metric confusion where I'm a recommendation system, I am looking to maximize something that initially I thought was meaningful, but then I had this proxy and then I optimize for the proxy. Um, how does all this sort of tie into 
the decline of spaces and togetherness that you were speaking to. Yeah. The revealed preference thing has been a kind of mainstay of economics literature for most of the 20th century. And this led, I think, to some mistakes in, in microeconomics. Um, uh, one of them is the division of things that the market provides into goods and services or public and private goods or club, club goods. There's different ways of dividing it, but um, they all kind of imagine uh, that people can be served individually based on their individual preferences. And one of the things you find when you collect people's sources of meaning is that a lot of them are social and it just doesn't make sense to serve them individually. Like uh, you, 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 you can't, you can't do it. Like, and, and people know this of course, and that's why, you know, they do why we play sports and, and, you know, with a team <laughs> and why we, we go to concerts with a whole hall of people instead of, uh, you know, one at a time and stuff like that. Like, it's kind of a no-brainer from a from a human perspective. Obviously, most of what we enjoy is social, a great deal of it. But somehow it didn't make it into the economic models that are used. And the economic models went and justified a whole bunch of uh, institutions, like 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 uh, market solutions to, to human problems. And then this leads us to, I think, the, the kind of... Um, the kind of world that I don't know, like uh, Fight Club kind of uh, commented on the the movie, right? Where you're ordering from IKEA alone, and then you're you know watching Netflix or whatever, and you're you're sort of constantly in this weird situation where you're trying to fulfill yourself alone when people really don't work like that. Um, and there's all these goods and services that you're you know using. Um, and there's this sort of long tail idea that if I could just find the perfect Ikea furniture that's customized to my particular aesthetic, because I was born in the, uh, you know, late seventies and like, I don't know, then I'll finally be fulfilled. Right. Um, and so that, that just doesn't work. And so to fix that, I think we need a, we need a more explicitly social conception of what kinds of entrepreneurial projects need to be supported. And that's where I do this funnels, tubes, and spaces kind of breakdown as my own breakdown of the economy, um, where funnels and tubes are, are these goal-directed things that can be, that are easier to individualize and spaces are entrepreneurial projects that are very hard to individualize and that are built around sources of meaning and more often, uh, often social ones. Um, and I think that's that's just my kind of uh, I'm trying to patch some of the underlying thinking in economics, but then there's a whole bunch of consequences that mostly remain to be worked out. How do we actually we've thought for a hundred years how do we make a society with abundant goods and services that individually provide everything that a person needs? We haven't done the equivalent amount of thinking of like how do we create a, a, a society that's rich in spaces. Um, so in a way I've sort of tried to fix a little bit of the terminology, but most of the work remains. I think you're right that there's a lot of work on this front and this exact same, I guess I, I won't really call it a dichotomy, but I guess this sort of, um, sliding scale between the individual as kind of the primary unit that we operate on, that we think about the most salient, um, thing that our society or our institutions or the things we're building attend to versus maybe families versus maybe larger social groups versus maybe the whole of society, those all being sort of different points along that scale. Um, I think that very much comes up as well when we think about, for example, the policies that we develop with regards to like AI systems and how those interact with people. It seems that very much in the United States, um, that is certainly influenced by our underlying grammar, where the individual is that most important thing. And that's very much, you know, embedded in the, the sort of political structures we have, and just the, the foundations. Whereas if you look at, um, you know, countries where the societal aspect is a bit more important, and it's less about the, the singular person, but what's best for 
families what's best for groups of people and you have intergenerational households and things like that, then the conceptions of what are the harms caused by an algorithmic system might start to to look a little bit different. And so <clears throat> I think in in the United States, we're definitely working out a lot of these issues. And I wouldn't say that anybody has the full answer to any of it. But I do wonder um, if in working out some of these things in terms of trying to transcend the individual as the unit of economic measure, whether you found any sorts of interesting uh, places to to look to for for inspiration and working out some some of these um, sort of later things. So I, I have a hope. I don't think that it's proven yet, um, but I think that there, there's this. Uh, I think that the reason that um, the U.S. is so individualist and that um, much of political theory and law and um, and economics focused on things like individual rights is because there's been this tension between collectivism and individualism and they both sound bad. Like um, <laughs> collectivism sounds like you're, you're submitting to some kind of, uh, you know, it's like really going to cramp your style. It's really, it's, you know, okay, we're conforming. And there is this feeling in more collectivist societies like uh, in Japan or, or, or Norway, people feel, oppressed by the collective yeah by by the need to like like fit in um they don't feel like they can express themselves as freely you know it's kind of like society becomes kind of like a a family that has like a parents that have very strong opinions about how you should live your life you know <laughs> that are kind of uh yeah you, you that are driving some kind of conformity and then there's a there's a, a societal result there too which is that things are are you know people are less creative they're less free to to they're less entrepreneurial and uh, there's a whole bunch of advantages of being free from that conformity uh for society and i think that the division i hope this is a little i don't want to sound too cocky but i hope that the division between that i talked about earlier between social norms and and personal values uh uh or source, social norms and, and sources of meaning kind of solves this because there are collective things that are part of our free expression. Like if you're part of an improv comedy group or you're part of a jazz band or something like, like that's not holding you back. Right. That's, uh, that's allowing you to be more expressive, more yourself, you know, wilder. Right. And there's many, many things like that. Half of sociality, sociality, if you're lucky, is is that kind of stuff is is um, amplifying the individual, right? Um, or unlocking the individual. And then there's another half of sociality, which is like all the rules and the norms and like and those things. Like I said before, are they are important, but you don't really want to amplify them with technology so much, right? You don't want to like. Um, clamp down even harder. This is why people are afraid of things like uh, Chinese social credit, right? Because they imagine a kind of dystopia where the tech is being used to make what might be social, like oppressive social expectations in the first place, even more oppressive, right? And so I think that the, I hope that the idea of personal sources of meaning that are basically social um, and the ideas of spaces, which are like designed for these this good part of sociality, this, the, the, the sociality, and they're both good. I don't mean to say that one's good and one's not, but like the, the part of sociality that is amplifying and expressive and so on, if we can, if we can separate that and say, okay, well, technology is going to come down on that side and it's going to make more jazz bands and it's going to make more improv groups. And it's going to like whatever people need to express themselves when that requires a social container, tech is going to help. And that doesn't mean that tech is in service of the other stuff, the, um, the social expectations, the, the rules. Um, I think that's a very, that could be a very powerful lever that can fix a way in which our, a lot of our rhetoric has been stuck kind of between collectivism and individuality for a long time.
And if I, my hope is that as that spreads, that will lead to, it will, it will happen even outside of tech. Like uh, there'll be policy implications. Like once people can say, Oh, this policy has, has, you know, this effect on social norms, but this other effect on, on, on meaning, right. Like then we can, we can, it's not just tech that we can shape to support that kind of like rich social life. That's a really interesting way of putting it. So I, I, I guess if I understood it, the main thing you're getting at and that I think is kind of an important part of thinking about what meaning is for an individual, what those values are, that in some ways there are they are a bit socially inflected and the spaces that we reside in at different times might have impacts on those values or allow us to express certain parts of our individuality. And so certainly it's it's far from a, a dichotomy and we can sort of think about the contextualized nature in which the things we're building sort of impact people in this way. I'd love to spend a little bit of time on some concrete pictures of what it really looks like to build spaces, to build things that um, really allow people to be brought together. And I think that you put together some really interesting ideas in this other paper, social programming considered as a habitat for groups, sort of studying how people use ordinary speech to set up social roles, obligations. Could you maybe introduce a few of the a few of the ideas in, in that paper? Sure. Yeah, not very many people know about that paper, so I'm glad you found it. Um, one of the other problems with social media, besides the ones we've already talked about, is that a small number of programmers make uh, a way for millions, sometimes billions of people to communicate. And then those millions or billions of people are locked into that way of, of communicating. And um, yeah, I think, uh, and, and, and different online media have different degrees of flexibility. Um, so there are some, some chat environments, like there's this, uh, there's this video chat environment called Sprout. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, I've heard of it. Cool. This is this is like some people's attempt to make a much more flexible one where you can make kind of little widgets that interact with the chat. You can do some program like end user programming inside the video chat. You can drag in web pages and use them together and stuff like that. So there's some there's some amount of flexibility, um, but a lot of people like if we look at Snapchat or TikTok, um, like uh, uh, or or if you look at I don't know Facebook Messenger. There's just like a few formats and people are kind of locked into these formats and you, you, I think it ends up shaping people and they wouldn't choose to interact if they, if they could, if each person, if each teen, teenager had their own programmer and the, who was ready to make whatever kind of chat app would suit them, I think there would be a much wider variety of media in play. And, and so this is, this is too bad. Um, and I think we're, we're, there's a lot of different ways in which this could be addressed um, with LLMs doing some of the coding, for instance, we could have a situation where every teenager does have their own programmer who can make their own chat app. Um, so that's one direction. I'm also interested in how people, when they talk, like I, I'm, I've made a lot of games, like a lot of social games, a lot of interactive, like, um, you know, like where you, you have a limited way of talking, but it ends up being really fun, uh, kind of improv games, these kinds of things, role-playing games. Uh, I like these things. And often a game can be set up in, in conversational language. So you say, oh, uh, okay, what if every time I say something that you don't believe, you clap twice or whatever, right? <laughs> and now I've sort of made our, our, our conversation into a game. I've added a new rule to it, right? And that will change our how, how we how we vibe, um, and uh, and actually kids do this all the time. Like if you if you listen in on a playground, um, kids are always using language to make up new games that involve language, and sometimes involve their whole bodies and like group interaction and stuff like that. As adults, we tend to fall into games that other people have kind of made for us. 
Um, it takes even some, you have to be very sociological to even see the games, but they do have names like, or they, you can make names for them. Like, um, for instance, there's like, uh, a lot of friend groups that, uh, uh, that like, um, com- where, where there's a game where it's like, oh, let's all complain about that one guy, for instance. <laughs> right. So you can kind of like, if you listen to other people's conversations and you make notes, you can kind of make up the names of the games that people are playing. And I do think that they, the games travel socially. They're not just, it's not just, uh, we're not just making up names for them. Like they're, they actually kind of exist as a social object. Um, anyway, uh, we can't really do that with software. Like software is rigid in a way that kids on a playground are not, but I'd really like for that to change. And one way for that to change is to make it so that as you talk with each other in a chat room or something, the chat room changes. Um, so, uh, you know, it grows buttons, uh, it colors the language differently or whatever. Um, there's new visual auditory affordances and so on. And so this, I, I attempted to make a programming language for a prototyped a pro- programming language for, for doing that. So for programming inside of a chat room as a group of people, so that as you talk, the rules of the chat change. And I think, yeah, I would love to explore this more. Uh, I, I, uh, yeah, I, I moved away from it uh, because I just had other things that felt more pressing, sure. societally kind of. But I think that this is a, is, a, is a big potential area of research. I love the ideas you introduced here. And the dearth of formats issue is something that I've been thinking quite a bit about recently. I actually have a friend who's also trying to build something of a social network where there are many different sorts of options for people engaging in different types of spaces. And um, this friend was kind of worried about, okay, is this actually scalable? And I kind of had, was going along the same line of thought as you, of you, um, that you were thinking about in terms of, well, now we have LLMs and things that can kind of adapt and program. And so maybe that's one way to go about it. But it does strike me as interesting just the cognitive effect it must have to be on a platform like Twitter, where everything is so standardized just in terms of what the text text looks like and whether I'm reading something from, you know, the president of the United States or somebody who is a medical expert or somebody who has no idea what they're talking about. Now there are things that Twitter has begun to insert of, oh, this is some relevant context. But before those sorts of features were added, and I don't know how pervasive they are yet, that information all looks structurally the same to me. And I imagine that must have some, even before we consider the the group interactions component of all of this, that, that formatting issue, I, I imagine must have some kind of cognitive effect on us. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, a lot to be said there. I, I think that there's um there's so many places where I think that format is the best lever. So we've talked a lot about ML and ranking in recommenders. Um, but I, I don't actually think that's the biggest lever for making better social media. I think that, um, for instance, I, I was part of a, um, uh, there was an experiment that some of my students did at a major social network uh, where they, instead of the, the standard on Twitter and Facebook and other places is that you have an original post and then you have a set of comments and the comments below the original post are not structured. They're, they're just in a line. Um, they might have some threading, but uh, that's the whole deal. And uh, there was an experiment run that, instead of having these unstructured comments would look at the post and under certain circumstances, make it uh, comments, organize comments into pros and cons so that people were kind of like offering evidence in support of an original post or, or kind of a, a counterpoints against an original post. And, uh, and this had a dramatic effect on especially political discourse. Um, just this structural change. Uh, things were much more civil um, there were, there were much more like people were interested in the, in the counter arguments. They didn't feel like they were having a debate and going back and forth. Like one of the things that were, this, this experiment was about was looking at 
arguments people get in like with their relatives um, where, you know, somebody posts something that seems racist or something. And then somebody posts something that's like really angry about that. And then they get into this kind of human back and forth, right? This one person against another person. But if you separate it out into pros and cons, then it, everything becomes about kind of the original post and um, you can't really have the same kind of argument, right? And this had brilliant effects, but, but then it's, it's quite hard to have a diversity of formats in current social media and to explain the diversity of formats and to, um, you know, from a UX point of view, it's quite hard. So I think, uh, I think there's, I think that in, in human conversation, it's not obvious, but there is actually a very rich diversity in terms of how people uh, communicate, even in, in a room amongst each other. Um, there's different formats like books and articles and uh, word games and things like that, poems. But there's also uh, uh, a wide variety of like w- kinds of turn-taking, uh, kinds of role-playing facilitation. One person kind of fac- jumps in and says like, oh, let's hear from everybody and this kind of stuff, right? And a- almost all of this is impossible on social media. Like uh, you can't jump into a Twitter thread and say, oh, let's hear from everybody. It just doesn't, there's no way to do that. Um, and I think that, I think we need to make it possible uh, because actually different kinds of discussions require different kinds of formats or different kinds of uh, language games like that. And so that's something that will need to be figured out in the next, I don't know, five years, 10 years. It definitely atomizes interactions in a lot of ways. And I think that this is certainly striking when we look at, I mean, the, the move to remote work and the heavy usage of Slack and the way that impacts the way people are able to engage with their coworkers. I definitely experienced this myself. Um, I graduated in 2020, like right into the pandemic. So I kind of started work right at the time when working in person was not really an option. And there's certainly a, I guess I, I never worked full time before that happened. I, I had done internships and that sort of thing, but it is really interesting and the workplace just as kind of a, an example here to observe that difference between the atomized interactions, the I have a chat between myself and individual and one person, and then we interact and it's all very structured. And I have like a set of actions, a, a set of reactions that I can do with their messages. And that in order to bring more people into the conversation that can't happen spontaneously, I have to be like very, very intentional about this. And then, you know, I want to make certain changes to things. Well, the interface only supports um, a certain set of, of actions I can take. And that is really, I think, severely limiting on the types of, of interactions we can have with people. The, I guess you could, you could say things like serendipity or just accidental bits of knowledge I might pick up from people um, whether that's at work or that's in friend groups. And it, it does seem like um, there are a lot of ways to start changing this. So you already mentioned um, the virtues of, of format as a way to get at this. And I think it's really interesting just to think about the, like when you kind of abstract from the, I, I feel like we're just very limited in our imagination in lots of ways. When we think about like chat interfaces and that sort of thing, like I think chat interface, I immediately start to think Slack or Facebook messenger, but it does feel like you can kind of abstract from a lot of that. And I think you start to do some of the work in this paper where I just sort of think of the people who are going to be using this system as people with a goal, they want to engage with others. And so how can you build a system doesn't have to look like a chat app, but something maybe maybe it does kind of take on the broad strokes of a chat app. And how can you allow them to do that? And how can you make it as flexible as as permissible, giving them as many affordances as they need in order to kind of adapt to changing situations and things like that. Yeah, I I can kind of imagine. So one of the challenges with LLMs solving this problem is that there's also this problem of having a kind of a common data store. Like um, it's not just that we're, so you could imagine a thing where you could, you're using a client and you can give your LLM coder friend 
your your copilot an instruction to change the way that it displays the you know that it uses the API or accesses the backend data, right? But this this is this is a problem, like because we have some variation in in Twitter clients, for instance, or we did until a few weeks ago. Um, but not that much variation because they have a common API, a common data model that is like the tweet data model or whatever tweets users reply to tweets, quote tweets. And so this doesn't allow for that much variation on the client. So it does seem like there's something uh, more than just more necessary to unlock this kind of innovation and expressive potential than just some kind of end user programming solution. Um, and I, I do try to get at that in in software considered as a habitat for groups. Um, I try to get it like what kind of data model is so general that, um, that it could, it could kind of uh, be malleable uh, in this way by, by a group to, to, to approach any kind of, I think probably the solution is something kind of like what I made, but also involving LLMs so that it's much more accessible because I kind of made a programmer's version of this. I think also very importantly, you noted the, well, the important observation that, that humans have bodies, which is very true, and then also operate across many channels and media. And I think that certainly systems that actually want to build for social groups really have to take that medium independence into account and figure out how do you, I mean, I think this speaks to some of the data storage stuff, but then also the aspect of, of interfaces and how we're engaging with a system and with one another. Sure. Have you ever been to dynamic land? I have not. What is that? Oh, um, do you know who Brett Victor is? The name sounds familiar, but I'm actually not sure. So he, he's one of my, my mentors and inspiration. He, he builds this um, immersive computing environment called dynamic land, uh, where there's uh, cameras and microphones in the ceiling uh, and connect uh, also connect sensors in the ceiling. And so this means that your your gestures, the thing, the pieces of paper that you lay out on the table, uh, all of these things can be I- inputs. And there's quite a lot to it. He has his own, there's a programming language called Realtalk, um, which is explicitly for connecting real world actions and software responses. Um, there's also like projectors in the ceiling. And so you can you can make it so that when you make a certain gesture or uh, write out some code on a piece of paper that's just in front of you that actually that like runs in the in the in the room and then has a projected result, and this creates a much more uh, uh, convivial way of doing computing tasks because every the 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 cloud is in the room <laughs> in a way right and there's no screens that are getting in between of everyone. And so, yeah, this is this is also a very nice uh, direction in terms of this kind of more malleable computing. That's really neat. I think this might be a good place to turn towards maybe some kind of broad takeaways and, and closing thoughts. What would you say to somebody who's thinking about, well, I'm a person who thinks a lot about optimization problems, about machine learning, and kind of cares about what I can do to make the products I'm involved with do more to engage with people's sources of meaning with their values. Yeah. So I think we're in a real turning point, like a real fulcrum moment as, as a kind of a global society. It's, it's very exciting. And and it, it seems like there's a number of different, it seems like, um, you know, machine learning uses are expanding very quickly. They're making headlines every week. Um, and those things will go in, in, in one direction or another. Um, and it really does depend on, on what we're optimizing for. Um, and in a way this is not that new because there's, there's kind of through, throughout history, different things, different criteria for what a good society is kind of arise. Um, so, uh, you know, for a while, a good society was one that had a lot of wealth. Um, and that, that that worked and it you know it created things like suburbs and like uh uh making it easy to buy a house and highways and like all these different um you know there's a whole bunch of motivation that got behind okay let's make let's make a a, an affluent society what does an affluent society look like how do we how do we do this and then that kind of 
started, you know, at, at, at some point as we're, we're optimizing for some new thing, like this broad affluence, it starts failing or having unintended consequences. I, both of those happen, right? Like, so we're, we've sort of failed to distribute the wealth anymore. <laughs> and we also entered into this kind of overconsumption tendency. We supersized our drinks and so on. And that didn't really seem to make things better. So, you know, this kind of wealth optimization thing is, is, is uh, it's at the end of the road. And then there's this question, okay, well, what, where are we going to go next? Um, and there's different options. And I, I, I kind of stand for team, like, meaningful lives. And I think this ends up meaning that we change a lot of things. I mean, just like the wealth optimization led to all of these different things, changes in living structures, changes in, um, you know, democracies and, and, and markets and mail order catalogs. And, you know, it's the same for, for meaning. There's a million new kinds of businesses to make, a million new kinds of nonprofits, ways to redo democracy, ways to redo, you know, how people shop, uh, how people meet each other, how people date, like absolutely everything can be rearranged from the point of view of, of what's meaningful. And so that's one level. It's just like, get on board. Like in a way, all the stuff that I'm advocating for is, is just a, a tiny base layer of like, you need to, for instance, be able to collect people's sources of meaning, but then what matters is what you do with it. Right. And you can do a million things to help people live more meaningful lives after you figure out what those sources of meaning are. Right. So that's step one. And then if you, if you want to, I'm, I'm a little worried still that we might go in the wrong direction as a society. And I imagine many of of your listeners are, I'm not, I'm not a doomer. I think there's a really good chance we'll, we'll go in the right direction. But if you're worried about what's strategic, I, that's something that, uh, that we work a lot on. Like I'm kind of starting a nonprofit, the rebuilding society on meaning, rebuilding meaning kind of network or whatever. And this is an advocacy organization where we try to identify, okay, like what really needs to happen, like to, to keep us, uh, or to, 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 to go down the right direction to, to focus on meaning, what are the, and so this is, this involves networking with, um, you know, doing just the right research, making sure that things like recommenders and, and assistants that are rolled out by major labs, uh, are, are meaning aligned ways of spreading this kind of, uh, message like with our talks and things like that and much more accessible media that we haven't made yet so yeah step one or level one is just be part of the solution and 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 you know use some of this stuff to make things that are really meaningful for people and level two is figure out what's most strategic in that landscape where if we do it now uh you know we're likely to to put everything on on the right course that's fantastic advice as a last question, are there are there any examples of things that people are building today? Whether it's sort of examples like the the habitat sort of prototype we mentioned earlier, or just spaces that you're really excited about? Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, they don't yet win. Um, like so, uh, for instance, um, uh, one of our advisors, Buster Benson, he makes a, a social network called Seven Hundred Twenty Words. That's for people to support each other in journaling every day. And this is just a beautifully designed social network. I, I, I love it. And it has about 5 million users, I think, which is enough to show that like you can make such a thing and really reach a lot of people, but not enough to really count in the, in the landscape of, of, of the kind of dinosaurs of social networking, right? And I think there's a lot of things at that level. Sprout, which I mentioned earlier, is at that level. There's a lot of research projects like Dynamic Land, which I mentioned, which are really beautiful kind of computing possibilities. Brett, who who made Dynamic Land, he's he's running a, a science lab that does bioengineering kind of stuff uh, right now, where they all do it without screens and they interact with their you know these projections and gestures and uh, pieces of paper and kind of in in physical space to do bioengineering, which is like a great example. So I think there's actually a ton of, and and I think a lot of entrepreneurs, and I might even say most entrepreneurs are motivated to do something really meaningful, to bring something really meaningful to the world for their users. And then because of this revealed preference kind of dogma and the attention economy and everything that's kind of built on it and the lack of uh, spaces and the, the kind of all the things that support funnels and tubes, 
all of these entrepreneurial projects that start out really meaningful get get twisted. Um, so in a way, you can look at almost anything that's just starting out and it'll be beautiful. <laughs> it's only later when it's trying to win the attention economy that it starts getting really nasty. It's certainly not the fault of any individual entrepreneur, I think, who wants to create something that really does this. And there's a lot broader than this. Well, this was a really thoughtful conversation, Joe. I'm a big fan of your work. I'm glad that you gave me the chance to relay some of these thoughts to our listeners. And I really appreciate your taking the time to talk to me today. Thank you. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Maybe I'll, I'll say one more thing. If, if uh, Please. Which is just... Um, if you're an ML researcher and you're interested in uh, working on some of these things like tuning recommenders for sources of meaning, building meaning aligned assistance, uh, things that are kind of very close to what I'm doing, please get in touch because uh, we're building research teams to, to do this. And there's already a bunch of people that you might want to meet. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.